You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome, listeners. Uh, Before we get into today's blockbuster show, just a reminder, we have our 127th annual Henry George Dinner on next Tuesday. It's at the Brunswick Mess Hall. We have Dr. Cameron Murray speaking, the author of Game of Mates. You've heard him on the show a number of times. Yes, he's the one who used game theory to reveal corruption within the property industry, within all the sort of uh, natural monopolies that are being privatised around the country. Do not miss this event. If you're a regular listener and you can ask me an insightful question, uh, send it to renegades at earthsharing.org.au and I'll put your name on the door. All right, let's get into today's interview. Well, listeners, welcome to the show. And do we have a story for you today of recent, uh, the drama surrounding Agent K and the legal case where the Australian government is suing a former uh, spy for uh, revealing details to essentially corporate espionage enacted by the state when it came to East Timor's oil fields and the the bugging of East Timorese government offices during uh, the tense negotiations uh, that that was undertaken in. Well, as always... uh, the Americans are leading the way on things like this and with the recent announcement by uh, President Trump to increase the defence budget from $600 billion to some $717 billion now, I thought it was appropriate that we invited uh, former Professor of Economics at uh, UC Riverside where he held that position since 1976, uh, Mason Gaffney, who is... Uh, the most respected academic within the Georgist economic community. He's written a screed of books, including the groundbreaking The Corruption of Economics. He's also recently just published a paper called Corporate Power and US Military Policy that was largely written in the 1960s and has recently been updated. So, Mason, a very warm welcome to you on the show. It's been a number of years since we've had you on board. But uh, this influence of American corporate power and the link to the military-industrial complex is a long and sordid one. Uh, You've been reviewing this for decades upon decades. Uh, How do you sum up the link between corporate power and U.S. imperialism? Well, they are one and the same thing. Uh, the, uh, the government of the United States is dominated by international corporations or corporations with international connections and interests, and they have gotten used to using the backup of U.S. military power over a long period of years going way back to 1823 when the Monroe Doctrine was issued, uh, declaring that Latin America really is the United States turf and European powers, not to mention everybody else in the world, but uh, they were the main problem then, should stay hands off. Certainly. And... uh, 
because these powers were mainly engaged in fighting each other at that time and uh, didn't need to take on a new enemy. They pretty much left uh, the so-called New World to the United States. And the United States at that time, for many years, was uh, dominated by uh, statesmen from the southeastern states, the slave states, who were very anxious to expand our borders and bring in more land for their slaves to work. And since they owned the labor supply, anything that would otherwise increase wages uh, simply increased the value of their slaves and provided them with a particular kind of unearned increment. So uh, for many years, that was the dynamic force in U.S. foreign policy until finally Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860 and the uh, slave states realized that they could no longer carry the rest of the country along with their designs for the expansion of slave power. So they, as you know, uh, seceded. And uh, the result was a terrible bloody war, the worst in our history. And uh, the North finally won. So so the power balance shifted after the Civil War from the South where the slave owners were looking to expand into Latin America to the industrial North. But uh, was the purview of the American elite still that uh, the world's natural resources were theirs for the taking? That was their point of view, but it was quite muted at first. Uh, we first had to renegotiate our relations between the North and the South, and it didn't take long before the Northern politicians decided to uh, let the former slave states back into the Union on the understanding that the North would stop enforcing black people's rights in the South and allow for what became called the Jim Crow Society where black people basically had no political power. And uh, the uh, South, in turn, would vote in the interests of the northern capitalists who were running wild, seizing lands that the uh, southerners had previously seized, hoping to expand slavery. But they began building railways. Before that, they had built canals, believe it or not. Uh, there was a big canal boom before the railroad booms, but then uh, three or four transcontinental railroads were uh, built, linking the Atlantic and Pacific states. And uh, while the northern states were at it, they began... Uh, seizing more lands from uh, Spain and, and France. To, in the case of France, uh, it was done uh, peacefully in a way <laughs> because Napoleon uh, needed money, and so he sold the Louisiana 
territory to us for a song, really. And then uh, Spain let us have Florida, and then there was the Spanish War, and we seized the Philippines, and we seized uh, Hawaii while we were at it, and uh, we purchased Alaska from Russia while we were at it. By that time, the taste for expansion was thoroughly imbued. Theodore Roosevelt was the uh, main imperialist at that time. He seized the Panama Canal right of way from the small nation of Colombia, which meantime had revolted against Spain and become independent. And uh, that opened up the Pacific and that opened up the world. And it's been one darn thing after another since then. Of course, the nuclear bomb uh, gave U.S. military and State Department leaders a feeling that they were on top of the world. Only we had the bomb. So President Truman who succeeded F.D. Roosevelt, expanded our territorial waters. We had a three-mile limit when I was a boy, but shortly after the peace treaty was signed, uh, Truman expanded our territory from three miles out to 200 miles. Well, 200 miles from the continental United States that increased the area of the nation by uh, at least 50%. But that wasn't enough. We'd have had all these little islands now, like the Hawaiian Islands, and a 200-mile limit from each island included a lot of territory. And we had the Gulf of Mexico, Alaska, and uh, in the Pacific territory, we discovered uh, subsurface minerals under the seabed, and they gradually became our major source of petroleum. Well, U.S. corporations seized... We have an obligation to every last victim of this illegal aggression because all of this carnage has been done in our name. Since World War II, 90% of the casualties of war are unarmed civilians, a third of them children. Our victims have done nothing to us. From Palestine to Afghanistan to Iraq to Somalia to wherever our next target may be, their murders are not collateral damage. They are the nature of modern warfare. They don't hate us because of our freedoms. They hate us because every day we are funding and committing crimes against humanity. The so-called war on terror is a cover for our military aggression to gain control of the resources of Western Asia. This is sending the poor of this country to kill the poor of those Muslim countries. This is trading blood for oil. This is genocide. And to most of the world, we are the terrorists. Lands all over the world, especially, of course, in, in those places where our military was strongest. But that included most of Latin America. It included uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. It included... Uh, it included lands around islands, 
and U.S. outposts all over the world. We seized outposts. We learned from Imperial Britain, of which you, of course, have been a part, so you know about how they operated. Mm. As they seized Gibraltar, uh, we seized Guantanamo, and uh, that's been considered U.S. territory ever since, where we could imprison people and break every American law by torturing the poor souls on foreign territory. Foreign territory illegally, but we had the soldiers there. Well, uh, these are just aspects of imperialism. When it came to uh, subsurface resources, these were the point of the sword, so to speak, because they were invisible to the natives. If you took away their banana lands, they could tell. And they didn't like that, of course. But if you made a deal with a dictator whom U.S. Marines had installed originally to sell out his country's resources to U.S.-based corporations, and these resources were invisible, that is, they were undiscovered as yet, and they were under the bottom of the ocean, so the average peasant in, say, Mexico, Brazil, Venezuela, didn't know what was going on. That could be done with much less friction. Well, as the paper points out in, in great detail, many of these lands had already been seized by the British and the Dutch, especially, and a smaller extent by the French and the Portuguese. But owing to their weakness during World War One and their need for our alliance and our assistance in winning the war, our statesmen quietly behind the scenes, working with American-based corporations, especially the Rockefeller Group, insisted that U.S. corporations, U.S.-based firms, be given access, say, to the Persian Gulf, which was previously the turf of uh, Shell Oil, a Dutch-based firm, and uh, uh, British Petroleum. And then uh, they got together for a while and, and uh, created uh, what's it called? The, uh, well, there was a large multinational corporation that, that uh, bought up more and more land in the Persian Gulf, fomented a revolution in Iran in order to seize more lands from Iran and then <laughs> acted very self-righteous. Listeners, we're with Mason Gaffney, leading Georgist author of uh, books such as The Corruption of Economics, and uh, I've recently had a, a book dedicated to him called Rent Unmasked, highlighting his work over the last 40, 50 odd years. And uh, Mason, the skill of the US imperial uh, outfit is that uh, not only do you have uh, some 800 bases uh, planted around this dear planet, but uh, something I wasn't quite aware of, and you go into quite some detail, and that is uh, 
the the use of powerful families in in many of these nations, particularly in Latin America, with uh, uh, this term uh, you brought to my knowledge of caciques. Can you explain some of their influence and uh, how they have fed into the many coups that have been undertaken in nations where some form of resource nationalism has been encouraged by the leader of the day? Yes, that happens periodically. It happened in Cuba, for example. You're aware of the Cuba Missile Crisis and all that food for us. Well, the Cubans came out pretty well on that one. Uh, the more recent one is Venezuela, and they're not coming out well at all. And uh, one of the uh, many uh, subversive tactics that the American State Department uses is uh, they dominated the government of Colombia, neighboring Venezuela, and then when they wanted to get rid of a Venezuelan dictator who was seizing uh, American-owned oil properties, uh, they sent Colombian special troops to assassinate him. And then uh, he was succeeded by this uh, Chavez fellow. And since they declared him a terrorist and a world enemy and all the nasty names you can think of, and they uh, boycotted Venezuelan products and refused to buy Venezuelan oil, and they also sent in uh, what the French call agent provocateur to uh, encourage outrageous acts by the supporters of, of the government of Venezuela in order to discredit them in the eyes of the public, both the American public and the world public. And that is still going on, as you know. And now in Haiti, after the latest hurricane, it seems that uh, the waters surrounding Haiti, they are fertile territory for submarine oil. Now that means that before serious prospecting has become, before exploratory wells are drilled, electronic soundings without physical drilling have established the uh, probable presence of very large quantities of oil and gas and other minerals. So in the U.S. Navy in order to protect the Hadians from themselves, I guess, has pretty much taken control of that part of the Caribbean and uh, is prepared to lease it out to U.S.-based farms and uh, other firms that are associated with countries that are closely allied with the United States. And what they have done is, is so similar to land speculation that it's really a form of land speculation. In order to maintain the world price of oil, they uh, don't mind building up enormous reserves. These reserves, it's like land speculation. They don't acquire the, the reserves necessarily in order to use them in the near future, but to keep others from using them. 
artificial scarcity, Mason, is uh, a big weapon, isn't it, in uh, manipulating the prices of resources so that uh, the companies uh, earning these profits, uh, earning these rents from our oils, uh, maximise their returns. Thank you for coming up with the right words here. Yeah. Mason, I wanted to shift on to something that uh, really surprised me, and we just don't get enough uh, insight into the scale of uh, multinational corporations and all the tentacles uh, spread around the world. But there was one uh, statistic you you mentioned in this report from way back in 1965, and that was that uh, the international production by U.S. companies on foreign soils was three times more important to the U.S. economy than its very own export sector. Now, that was from the U.S. Census in 2017. Has that trend continued, Mason Gaffney? The, the short answer is yes. The uh, essence of cartels is to have a very high ratio of reserves to current uh, sales, current production. Well, production is the wrong word. They don't produce oil. They extract it and, and sell it. But they they have a very high ratio of reserves to current sales. They are land speculators on a global scale. And once you understand domestic land speculation, uh, international speculation of the kind that cartels uh, are expert at, it's just the next logical step. And all of this is done under the umbrella of the U.S. Armed Forces, which are paid for mostly by U.S. taxpayers, disguised with names like patriotism and national security. This whole article started actually 40 years ago, and at which time I lost my job because of it. Wow. The... Uh, shall I say, cliche or the uh, cover story that was peddled by professors of economics in, in universities around the world is that national defense is what they called a, quote, public good. And they define public good to mean that everyone benefits equally from it. Now, that was a standard doctrine back in 1970 when I wrote the, the first uh, manuscript. The one that caused me to lose my job at Resources for the Future, I said, this is obvious nonsense. This is not a public good. It's not one from which everyone benefits equally. The... Uh, immigrant field hand, the former slave who is still a tenant, they don't benefit from uh, U.S. imperialism. Uh, they simply have to pay taxes, and more and more taxes were being shifted off resource and, and business profits onto uh, wages. 
So the poor guys pay the taxes, and then the economists tell them that they uh, benefit from U.S. military protection of uh, overseas holdings just as much as uh, Rockefeller and Sinclair and all those other oil men do. Well, uh, I was working at the time for a think tank called Resources for the Future, and its uh, stated mission was to uh, inventory uh, our uh, energy-producing resources, uh, especially oil and gas at that time, and see if we have enough to uh, cover our future. And by the time they hired me, (laughs) they had taken the official position that we had plenty of oil and gas right here in the United States to take care of the foreseeable future. Well, I'd only been there a couple of years when the OPEC oil embargo struck. And in order to buy a tank of gasoline, you had to get in the line. Every gas station had a line that would be half a mile long. Gasoline was rationed. That's when I moved to Canada. Canada had plenty of its own oils. (laughs) This was a, a psychological blow at the U.S. voter. That was very effective. But anyway, uh, my employer then, Resources for the Future, was still stuck in its position that uh, we had plenty of oil and gas in the continental United States. They didn't even know about Alaska at that time. Well, I said, you just cannot stick with this position. It's absurd on its face. Nobody's going to believe anything you publish from now on. And they were so offended that they uh, became very offensive to me. They didn't come right out and say, you're fired, but I could see they had writing on the wall. So that's when I took a job in Canada and enjoyed that for three or four years until my party lost the next election. And I was lucky to find another job in California. Mason, uh, one of the other big issues you highlight is uh, the capital efficiencies of these companies that were benefiting from these US bases and uh, these coups that would come into play to protect various uh, oil and mineral type resources. Uh, How efficient were these allocations of resources from your perspective? There was there was really no uh, objective uh, evaluation of efficiency. One thing that the data did make clear was that the bigger the oil firm, the more reserves they had per dollar of sales. So in that sense, you could say they were extremely inefficient. But that's a loaded term. So instead, I would say they had a very high ratio of assets to labor and of assets to sales and a very slow turnover of assets. Those are all indirect ways of saying in a social accounting, they were extremely inefficient. 
But their defenders had other ways of measuring efficiency, ways that they had learned from the oil companies themselves that made the big companies look look good. So uh, anyway, I, I was running head on into the power structures there. I didn't even realize it when I went there to begin with. There's a lot of people there I'd been in school with that were friends of mine. <sighs> but uh, I can realize that, that, that they were all, not all, but many of them worked for the CIA in their spare time. They were always globetrotting. They were always running around the world. What a perfect cover for a spy network. And each oil company had its own spy network. And the uh, U.S. State Department worked in conjunction with these so-called public servants who were really spy networks. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm ge- I'm getting warmed up. And <laughs> there's so much to tell. There I is. I hope that your hope that your listeners will read the uh, article that you cited. It's pretty long, but it contains all these salacious details about the dirty work. No justice, no peace. That's it, listeners. Catch the rest of the show on the podcast. Hope to see you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. There's that list of coups that you run through all in the 60s and your jaw just drops as uh, you you reinforce the uh, economic interests that are behind that. And uh, there's one particular statement that sums up the article for me and uh, the capitalised value of the US flag. That is the sum total of, of all these corporate profits. Uh, is that what you were implying? That's what I took from it. Yes, I did say that. And uh, that sums up, in a way, the... Uh, stamp of authority that uh, the U.S. Army provides for all these extracting industries that are marauding the world. And uh, I just wonder uh, what if, if I've got the right take on that. Well, these private uh, interests are using the, they're using the U.S. flag, which means the threat of, of armed force ultimately it was only last week that uh, some little islands off the coast of Africa, out in the middle of the Indian Ocean somewhere, I think Diego Garcia was one of them, the U.S. Navy wanted to land for a naval base. So uh, they simply evicted the uh, indigenous, wouldn't let them live there anymore. That's, that's brute force. And and there were oil resources nearby, you think? Nearby only in the sense of a worldwide network of military bases. We have several hundred, when I say we, I mean the U.S. Armed Forces. I have several hundred of these around the world. And these are very strategic islands out in the middle of the Indian Ocean, which otherwise has no... Uh, landing places. 
Hmm. Mason, uh, to sum things up then, uh, what has been the secret to US imperial thinking? How have they been so brazen in claiming so many of the world's resources over such a long time, but maintained uh, a perfect poker face at the same time? Uh, In terms of conserving world resources, they probably think they are the great conservationists because they are sitting on these reserves and not letting them be produced. Politically, uh, sure, there's a threat of power, but uh, the everyday media analyst, you know, still can't put together these, uh, join the dots between all of these different wars that have gone on and still American cultural uh, uh, Hollywood-based imperialism still reigns supreme and everyone looks at America as a as a good country in the West. Yes, well, uh, President Trump's so-called core of supporters are people who buy that line, hook, line, and sinker. The traditional Republicans buy it, but with less extreme uh, views. Some Democrats have been involved in it, too. But the history of empires that overreach, and uh, history books are full of it, (laughs) Alexander the Great, Rome, the uh, Dutch, uh, which still has holdings in in what used to be called the Dutch East Indies, Uh, England, of course, and uh, Australia is part of that network. You can go on and on. I think every European country was an empire at one time. Austria-Hungary. Then they got licked. So then uh, Prussia was the empire. And then they got licked. And then uh, the Allies were the empire. And then they went bankrupt. And the, the USA, with its technological superiority, if that's the right word for it, then they had the resources, and they had the belligerents, their people, taxpayers had the gullibility to take over the role of world hegemon. And now our people are slowly beginning to realize that we are. Uh, losing uh, the primacy that we once could take for granted. Uh, So what comes next? Uh, I hope it's not another world war. What message would you leave for future students of uh, economics and particularly uh, Georgia's economics? What is the the nutshell, uh, the elevator pitch to to get people uh, to recognize the importance of this story? Well, aim for the ultimate goal of supporting government by taxing land values. But uh, that's not the only goal. You have to keep the government from going wild and wasting the land tax revenues on imperialistic ventures. I mean, before the First World War, Germany was on route to taxing land values. Britain was 
en route to taxing land values. They never quite made it, but there was a strong movement. Uh, the USA was, of course, very much, relatively speaking, involved in taxing land values. But that's not enough. You have to spend the money wisely. So, uh, well, there's one strain of thought or belief that saves us from a lot of errors. And uh, pardon me for sounding like an old-fashioned preacher, but uh, a good deal of it is found in the Bible. I think, uh, well, I know that Henry George was raised on the Bible. And I think when you read Progress and Poverty, you can see the Bible all through it. Especially when he gets into the justice of the remedy. In spite of all the bloodshed, there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible. We need to uh, extract the wisdom and get rid of the nonsense, and there's plenty of that there, too. So I think a, a, a sense of social morality, which permeates the law and the prophets, as they call it, as Moses laid down the law. He said, the land is mine, says the Lord, and shall not be sold forever. And then along came uh, Isaiah and uh, Amos, and uh, who was the other one? Uh, anyway, was it Isaiah? He said, woe be to him who joins house to house and field to field until there be no place left over. Well, that's the kind of religion that George was exposed to as a child, and so were lots of people. Anyway, uh, the Christian church has been hijacked by uh, militarists for a long time, but it's time I would say to recapture some of the more pacifistic thoughts of Jesus and the other prophets and join them with the economic analysis that George was so good at. And George wasn't perfect at economic analysis either, but uh, that opens a new chapter. <laughs> I'll drop that for now. Beautiful, mate. Well, thanks so much for joining us, aged 92 and fighting fit. Uh, yes, listeners, uh, this document I will place in the show notes, and I'm also hoping to uh, highlight uh, an incredible article Mason wrote on the environment too in uh, a recent book. So uh, thanks so much again, Mason, for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Thank you, uh, Carl.